And we now come to the preaching of God's word. And so I invite you to take your copy of God's word and open to Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three. And the focus of our attention is gonna be verses 27 through 31. And I wanna begin by reading this portion of scripture. Romans chapter three, starting in verse 27. Paul writes, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. It was Martin Luther that God used to launch the Protestant Reformation. And in his German translation of the New Testament, he included the word alone in his rendition of verse 28. So that it reads as follows, quote, so we hold that a person is justified without works of the law through faith alone. Sola fide. And for this, Luther was severely criticized by the Roman Catholic Church. But the translation is justified because if a person is justified through faith, apart from works of the law, then they are justified through faith alone. The implication is unavoidable. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from any works or deeds of righteousness for both Jew and Greek alike, so that no one may boast. And that boasting is excluded is an inference drawn from verses 21 through 26 where Paul was really unpacking the, the glory of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, the, the saving righteousness of God. One, that the, the righteousness that saves has been manifested apart from the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified, and since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Two, that the righteousness that saves is witnessed to by the Old Testament since salvation has never been by works, and since the prophecy regarding God's saving activity in Christ goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Three, that the righteousness that saves is received entirely through faith in Christ, since there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, and since everyone who believes in him will most certainly be saved. Four, that the righteousness that saves is received entirely by grace, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and since justification is given freely as a gift. Five, that the righteousness that saves is accomplished entirely in Christ, since only he has paid the price of our redemption, and since only he has made satisfaction for our sins. And then six, that the righteousness that saves is a demonstration of the justice of God. 
since he has demonstrated his righteousness with respect to those sins which in his forbearance he had previously passed over. And since he has satisfied the terms of his own divine justice so that he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so it's by believing into Christ and the satisfaction of divine justice accomplished in his blood that a person is counted righteous before God, receiving both the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's unblemished record of righteousness, securing for us all that we need to stand holy and blameless before God. And that brings us to verses 27 to 31, where Paul will now draw the inference concerning boasting and then support that inference with a basic truth about God and then will refute an objection he anticipates setting the table for chapter four in Abraham as the quintessential model of justification by faith. And these verses really break up into three points, with each one following the same pattern, question, answer, and then explanation. And really function to solidify that salvation is divinely accomplished in Christ apart from any and all human achievement so that no one may boast. And if you're taking notes, that's exactly where Paul begins. So note first, there is no boasting. There is no boasting. Verse 27, Paul writes, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So Paul is contrasting two distinct human responses to God, one that permits boastful pride and the other that doesn't. And so it's a contrast between human achievement on the one hand and divine accomplishment on the other, or of human achievement and a free gift. You see, if justification is by, by works, then human boasting is permitted. It would depend on us and would be something to be earned. And if it's something to be earned, then righteousness to those who work becomes a wage that is due. Where you would be able then to put God in the, the place of debtor and he would be indebted to you. Where you would manifest the kind of righteousness through works that would Render God a debtor whereby he would owe to you a, 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 an imputation of righteousness, a, a declaration of, of righteousness, making justification something that is owed. And Paul makes this point in Romans 4.4, 4, where he says, now to the one who works, his wage is not counted as a favor, but as what is due, making boasting appropriate. And yet if justification is by faith, and it is, apart from works of the law, and it is, then boasting is totally excluded, since faith makes it unmerited. And you can't boast in that which you receive through no merit of your own. So to the question, where then is boasting, Paul answers, it is excluded. 
expressed by way of a divine passive. It has been excluded, where God is the active agent and has designed justification in such a way that boasting is completely ruled out. And then Paul employs the word law here, a word that, as we've seen, can be employed in a variety of different ways, dictated by, uh, by context. And here in verse 27, it's not referring to the laws we typically think of it, the, the Mosaic law. Instead, it's referring to law in the sense of a, a rule or a, a principle, where Paul says, by what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. And so boasting is excluded, not by a principle or a system of works, which would only serve to fuel human boasting, but by a principle or a system of faith, which makes boasting utterly inappropriate, even sinful. And then Paul gives the, ex the explanation. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Providing now the third statement concerning justification in this section. The first one came in verse 20, where it says this, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. A universal statement expressed in the negative that rules out anyone being justified by works. The second comes in verse 24 being justified as a gift by his grace. A statement defining the nature of justification as a free and gracious gift. And the third is here in verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Another universal statement, this time expressed in the positive, that justification is by faith apart from any and all works. And it's important to note, that this doesn't just rule out the works of the Mosaic law. It rules out works altogether. Sinful man can make no contribution to justification. Otherwise, there would yet remain room for boasting. And God has designed justification in such a way that boasting is entirely excluded. In fact, any contribution from works, any any hint of contribution from works on the part of man to justification would alter its very essence. It would cease to be a freely given gift since there would be something that a person could do to lay claim on God. And really, if works make any contribution to receiving the righteousness of God, then at least 10 implications can be drawn. At least 10. One, this entire section, and therefore this entire epistle, would be loaded with error. Why? Because one of the overarching themes of this epistle is that justification is by grace alone and through faith alone. And so we'd have to conclude that this entire epistle, along with the rest of the New Testament, isn't scripture, since it would be errant, fallible, insufficient, and unauthoritative. Two, the teaching of the Old Testament would be loaded with error. Why? Because justification by grace and through faith is firmly anchored in the Old Testament. We're going to see that in chapter four. Abraham 
believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness before ever being circumcised and before the law was ever even given, long before the law was ever even given. But if works make any contribution, then that isn't true, and we'd have to conclude that the Old Testament isn't Scripture either. Three, there wouldn't be salvation for anyone. There wouldn't be salvation for anyone. Why? Because if works make any contribution to justification, then God's justice would be compromised and he would cease to be God. To enter heaven, you need a perfect record of righteousness. And the only way to receive that is to receive the righteousness of another. And so if works make any contribution, then no one would be saved since no one would have the righteousness they need to enter heaven. Four, justification would not be a free gift. Justification would not be a free gift. Verse 24 declares, as we've noted, that a person is justified as a gift freely by grace. But if works play any part, then justification becomes something to be earned, obliterating the gift. Five, Jesus would not have accomplished our redemption. Jesus would not have accomplished our redemption. Verse 24 declares that a person is justified through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. But if you add anything to faith as a prerequisite for justification, then Jesus didn't accomplish anything. In fact, his status as Savior is severely jeopardized since salvation would be a synergistic work between God and man. Six, Jesus wouldn't have made satisfaction for our sins. Jesus would not have made satisfaction for our sins. Verse 25 declares that God displayed Christ as a propitiation in his blood that's applied to our lives through faith. That Christ has satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of his people. But if God's saving righteousness isn't imputed apart from works, then God's justice hasn't been served since something more would be needed to warrant him counting as righteous. Seven, God would cease to be the justifier. God would cease to be the justifier. Verse 26 declares that God is the justifier and it's it's through the demonstration of his righteousness that he can justify the sinner without compromising his justice. And yet, if works play any part, the sinner being justified, in the sinner being justified, then that is no longer true. Justification would go from being a divine gift to a payment that is due. Eight, God would be inconsistent since he justified Abraham through faith. God would be inconsistent since he justified Abraham through faith. It's unavoidable that Abraham was justified by faith. So if works play any role, then God is inconsistent. He would be impartial since he would have two ways of salvation. Nine, our Lord's teaching on regeneration would be contradicted. Our Lord's teaching on regeneration would be contradicted. Jesus says this, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Which means what? 
that the Spirit is sovereign in regeneration and that there's nothing you can do to bring it about. That you make no contribution to regeneration. But if works play a role, then Jesus' teaching here is not true. Instead of regeneration being a monergistic work of the Spirit, it too would be synergistic, a cooperative work between God and man. And then 10, stating the obvious, boasting wouldn't be excluded. Boasting wouldn't be excluded. Simply put, if works play any part, then boasting would be included. And the scripture here would be broken. So there's no boasting. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say it like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Justification is a free gift that comes by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. But how about some supporting argumentation? drawn from a basic truth about God. In fact, a core conviction of Judaism. And so note second, there is one God. There is one God. You see, the issue is this. If justification is secured by the works of the law, then only those who live within the sphere of the law can be justified, which is to say what? That only the Jew can be justified. Why? Because to perform the works of the law, one has to be under its jurisdiction. And yet the law was solely given to Israel. And so if justification is by the works of the law, then God would be the God of Jews only. Verse 29. Paul writes, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. And just for the record, the, the change there in prepositions from by and through is just stylistic. There's, there's no significance to that. And so what's the core conviction about God expressed in verse 30? That God is one, alluding to Deuteronomy 6.4, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. A declaration that there is but one God who is God over all. Paul expresses this elsewhere in a very Christological way in 1 Corinthians 4 and following, or 6.4 and following, when he says this, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And we exist for him and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. And so Paul is making an appeal to monotheism, that there is only one God. In fact, the, the New King James renders Romans 3.30 like this. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. 
And so Paul appeals to a core conviction of Judaism, again, that there is but one God to support that justification takes place apart from the works of the law. You see, if justification was by works, then a person would need to become a Jew first to be justified. But if that were the case, then God would not be the God of the Gentiles. He'd only be the God of the Jews. To be one who does the works of the law, you must be under the jurisdiction of the law. You must be within the sphere of the law. And so you would have to become a Jew first to be justified. But since there is one God who is God over all, justification must be the same for both Jew and Gentile alike. And for it to be the same, it must take place apart from the law. Not only because no one can keep the law, but also because the Gentiles are without the law, Romans 2.12. So that's the issue. Is God the God of Jews only? Or is he the God of Gentiles also? Answer, yes, of Gentiles also. And therefore, Paul draws from that the reality that justification must be apart from the works of the law. Now, tracking Paul's logic there may be difficult for you, but there's a couple of ways to illustrate this. Take God's covenant with Abraham. In it, God promised that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 22:18. And so the question is this. Would the nations cease to be the nations upon receiving that blessing? Or is it God's intention to maintain a plurality of nations in his plan of redemption? To make it easier, consider the Ninevites. Jonah went to the Ninevites and proclaimed the reality of imminent judgment. And in response, the Ninevites repented. When they did, were they still Ninevites? Or did they become Israelites? When Jesus addresses the, the, the Jews in his earthly ministry, and he makes appeal to the response of the Ninevites as a judgment on Israel, he still refers to them as the Ninevites. Or take us. Ephesians 2 indicates that through the blood of Christ, we've been made beneficiaries of God's covenant promises to Israel. That Jew and Gentile have been reconciled in one body to God. So is our national identity preserved or are we now ethnic Jews? And the fact of the matter is that our national identity is in some sense preserved. You say, on what basis? Well, for one, because of what Romans 3.29 says, that God is the God of Gentiles, not just the God of Jews. But for two, look at Revelation for a minute, Revelation 21 and 22. I want you to see that even in the context of the eternal state, nations are referred to, plural, 
indicating that even in the context of the eternal kingdom, a plurality of nations persists. So look at Revelation 21 and pick it up in verse 22. John is speaking here of the new Jerusalem. And he says in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city is no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 24, note this, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the nations are present in the eternal state and are even bringing their glory and honor into the new Jerusalem, into this city. And then look at verse one, chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of, note this, the nations. And then continue reading. Just to get the sense of this being the eternal state, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of the lamp nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. What's the point? That when you come to Christ, in some sense, your identity as belonging to the nations is preserved because God is not only the God of the Jews, he's the God of the Gentiles also. And that's the point that Paul's making. If God is only the God of the Jews, then yes, you must become a Jew to be justified. And then justification would be by the works of the law. But it's not by the works of the law because God is not just the God of the Jews. He is the God of the Gentiles. And therefore, justification must take place the same way. They must be justified on the same basis and have the same access to God. And we do in the proclamation of the gospel and justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So Paul uses the reality that there is but one God to support the doctrine of justification by faith. And then Paul is going to shift now to addressing an objection. And so he begins with the inference, there is no boasting. Then he goes to supporting argumentation, there is one God. And now he's going to deal with an objection he anticipates, one that pertains to the validity of the law. And so no third, there is no contradiction. There is no contradiction. Verse 31, Paul writes, do we then nullify the law through faith? That's the objection. 
If justification takes place apart from the law, then it would seem that the law is nullified. So what's Paul's answer? May it never be. Absolutely not. Expressed in a manner that appeals to the reader's volition. You should never conclude such a thing. And then he gives the explanation. He says, on the contrary, we establish the law. We're to establish the law is to uphold it. It's to validate it, to reinforce its validity. And so how does justification through faith establish the law? Well, there are three possibilities. The first is to see that the law is established in its testifying capacity. Look at Romans 3.21. There it says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so the Old Testament bore witness to this righteousness, which is manifested apart from the works of the law. And so advocates of this position see that the the law is established in that its its testifying capacity is affirmed, and therefore they be using the word law here to refer to the whole of the Old Testament. The second is to see that the law is established by fulfilling its role in leading people to Christ. Romans 3.19 It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. So it's indicting and it's indictment is to lead people to Christ. Even look at the end of verse 20. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And it's really this role and function of the law that takes center stage in Galatians 3 where it says this, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And so the idea is that the law is established by virtue of fulfilling its convicting role in preparing people for faith in Christ. And the third is to see that the law is established when believers fulfill its requirements through spirit-empowered obedience. This comes out in Romans 8. Turn there, verse 1 and following. Paul says there is... Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse four, here it is. So that... The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
And so through the enabling power of the Spirit, we fulfill the requirement of the law. And I think it's evident, if not doubtless, that that's the, the intention that Paul has here. Paul's, Paul's statement in verse 31, that through faith we establish the law, refers to this reality, that upon coming to Christ by faith and being saved apart from works, but then having the Spirit of God, we are able to fulfill the, the, the requirement, the, the just requirement of the law. And that's an amazing thing. Because we would be doing so apart from circumcision, the dietary restrictions, and every other identity marker of the Jews. We would be fulfilling the, the moral demands of the old covenant law apart from those things that distinguish the Jews from the Gentiles. Or said another way, we would be fulfilling the requirement of the Old Testament law by walking in obedience to the New Testament. You say, how can that be? Because the Old Covenant law is now mediated through Christ. And the substance of that law is expressed in the New Testament. And that's why you have so much continuity between the morality demanded by the Mosaic law and the morality demanded by the New Testament. Because both are expressions of that one transcendent moral law of God that is a reflection of who he is and his character. And so we establish the law just as Paul described at the end of chapter two, by walking by the Spirit's power in obedience to the word of God. So again, far from faith nullifying the law, we actually establish it, we uphold it, we validate it through Spirit-enabled obedience whereby we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And it's this relationship that so many get wrong, often to their own eternal peril, the relationship between justification and sanctification, between faith and obedience, or as edgy as it may sound in this context, between faith and works. You see, inseparable from justification is phase one of sanctification, what's often called positional sanctification, where we're both set apart from sin and also set apart unto God, raised to newness of life. And positional sanctification, which takes place at justification, sets in motion phase two of sanctification, what we call progressive sanctification where through the work of the Spirit, we begin the process of being progressively conformed into the image of Christ, a process that generates heartfelt obedience. Of course, it's not perfect obedience, but it's certainly God-glorifying and God-pleasing obedience. It's doing the will of God from the heart. And progressive sanctification gives way to perfected sanctification, when we're finally made perfect, finally glorified, 
and delivered from the very presence of sin, able to walk in perfect, unobstructed obedience. So how do people get this wrong? How do they, how do they blow this relationship to their own eternal peril? Well, one, they make no distinction whatsoever between justification and sanctification, and they slam the two together. And that then makes obedience to the law a requirement for salvation. It's putting justification and progressive sanctification into one, failing to recognize the distinction, and then trying to earn a righteousness that would garner God's favor. You want an example of that? The Roman Catholic. It's living by works. It's trying to be right with God by works, by obliterating the distinction between justification and progressive sanctification. Well, what's the other? It's the person that completely disregards that any relationship between justification and progressive sanctification exists at all. It's whereby any discussion of obedience to the word of God being evidence of justification is to, in their mind, add to the gospel. No, if you're saying that obedience to the word of God is a, an evidence of justification, then you are adding a condition to justification. No, we're not. We're saying you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you are, because you've been raised to newness of life, you will bear fruit, the fruit of obedience. And so who's the individual that blows that relationship? It's the cheap grace antinomian, the person who wants to have Christ and the benefits of salvation, but refuses to deny themselves, take up the cross daily and follow him, proving they don't know him. And usually what happens is that individuals like this can't handle being under the, the real preaching of the word of God, where there is a real call to holiness on the foundation of being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they crumble under it and then find a solution that allows them to maintain some profession in Jesus without actually having any responsibility to follow him or obey him. And so they abandon ship and end up with a false gospel and a false Jesus who doesn't actually save you, doesn't deliver you from the power of sin or the penalty of sin. What's the truth? The truth is this, that we're justified entirely by grace and through faith, apart from any acts of obedience, works of the law, or deeds of righteousness, and that having been raised to newness of life, we begin to obey God from the heart, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and being progressively molded into the very likeness of Christ, generating a life of directional, God-pleasing obedience that fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. And you know what that means. Not only are we not permitted to boast in our salvation, our justification, we're not even permitted to boast in our obedience. We can't even boast in the obedience 
that's generated from the fact that we've been saved. Even our obedience is generated by grace. That's why it glorifies God, because it's him who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. And apart from Christ, we can do what? Nothing, John 15.5. And so boasting is entirely excluded. From start to finish, the glory belongs entirely to God. But that also means this. There is a sense in which boasting is appropriate. What kind of boasting is appropriate? Boasting in the Lord. Psalm 20 and verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Or Psalm 34, 2. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Or Jeremiah 9, 23 and following. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And then Paul actually pulls from Jeremiah 9 when he says this, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And then you have this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which is the pride crusher. Paul, Paul writes, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you boast as if you had earned it? And so let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is the one who has accomplished salvation. He is the one who commissioned his son. It's the Lord that came, took upon himself human flesh fulfilled the law, fulfilled all righteousness, walked in perfect obedience to the Father, was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. It's the Lord that went to the cross. It's the Lord that, that suffered under the wrath of God for the sin of all that would ever believe on his name. It's the Lord who died. It's the Lord who went into the grave. It's the Lord who was raised on the third day. It's the Lord who ascended into the, into the, the heavens to be seated at the right hand of God. It's the Lord who's going to return in judgment. It's the Lord who has accomplished salvation at every point. Our boast should be in him, in God the Father, in the Son, in the work of the Spirit, in applying the work of Christ to our lives, to the Spirit in bringing regeneration, to the Spirit in bringing about sanctification, molding us evermore into the image of Christ. And so where is your boast? Who are you boasting in? What are you boasting in? What is your appeal to God? Are you going to appeal to your own goodness, which isn't 
since only God is good? Are you going to appeal to some deed of righteousness, which you've done, when God says there's none who does good? Or are you going to appeal to Christ and his perfect life and his perfect death and imputed righteousness, whereby you have been declared righteous by God in heaven through faith? Where's your boast going to be? I don't know about you, but my boast is going to be in the Lord. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you. You are our boast. We boast in you. We boast in Christ, we boast in the Spirit. Father, we, we reject any boasting that we would take unto ourselves. And Father God, forgive us if in any way we have boasted, if in any way we have taken that which we have received by grace and act as, acted as if we had earned it. Father, you are the one that deserves all of the honor and glory our salvation is yours from start to finish. We take responsibility for our sin, but you get the glory for all the good that is generated in our lives. And so we give you praise. You are an amazing Savior. And we do so in Christ's name. Amen.